Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus, for sending your Son, so that those of us who are come before you empty-handed with nothing, nothing to offer, nothing of merit that would purchase our pardon, uh, we come on the basis of Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm reminded as the song saying about being washed, I'm, rewind, I'm reminded what you say in the book of Isaiah, when you say, come let us reason together. In your sins, though they are as sky, scarlet, they will be as white as snow. So that's what we're doing. Come into your word, Lord. We're wanting to reason together to hear your reasons for this creation, for our lives, for our purpose in this world, for this church, for our families, for our communities. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us your reason. You would transform our mind. You would renew our mind according to what is true, what is good, what is beautiful as revealed in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning um, we... Uh, we're going to begin our um, time in the series in the Gospel of Luke uh, with a little dialogue between two great theologians on the nature of good and evil, Calvin and Hobbes, all right? <laughs> so this is, uh, uh, this is Calvin, he's writing his Christmas list, and um, he says to Hobbes, he says, I'm, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And he says, you're worried you haven't been good? Well, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. See, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Answer, but maybe good is more than just the absence of bad. See, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> Turn with me to Luke 16. This morning, uh, Jesus is going to settle this question once for all. And yes, it is the same passage we've been in the last uh, two weeks. This is our third week now. But, but uh, to be perfectly honest, I just haven't felt peace about moving on. So here we are again. And, um, and it, it has everything to do with how we define what's good. Or maybe how we define who's good. Or maybe better yet, who gets to define what's good and who's good. And specifically, why this matters, okay, is because it's really the heart behind the message today. It's really what you heard in the scripture reading about the record of debt being canceled against you, the one that's nailed to the cross. And, and in light of that, Paul says to the church he's writing to, therefore let no one judge you, because only God's your judge. He's already judged you guilty. He just also forgave you of your guilt. So you don't have to worry about anybody else's judgment, do you? You don't have to be defensive toward other people's judgment, do you? Even the devil's accusations, there's a sense in which you don't even have to defend yourself against that because he's always using the worst of you to accuse you. And you can just say, God knows the worst of me and he forgave me. So you have no claim on me. 
So let no one judge you and, the, and also let no one disqualify you, Paul says. Let no one disqualify you. And he talks about it in light of religious folk making less religious folk feel less qualified. And so what Jesus does today is he just, he just lifts the veil off this religious pretension, this facade that we can wear and, 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 and expose where it really comes from. And, and it really has to do with, with uh, what is good. So uh, here's where we're going today. Um, cor- oh, yeah, this is where we should have already been just now. But here's where we're going today. Okay, Jesus, the law, uh, the good, and the good news, okay? So, oh, oh, geez. Oh, no, I'm giving it all away. You guys can leave now. You know what's happening. Just kidding. Okay, so, uh, so that's where we're going today. Read with me. Uh, we'll begin in verse 10 of chapter 16. It says this. One who is faithful, this is Jesus speaking. He just gave the parable of the unrighteous steward who he used as a kind of exemplary figure for using unrighteous wealth for righteous purposes. And the Pharisees don't like this moral of the story. So verse 10, Jesus says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true, uh, with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The word of God. Well, let me uh, just get straight to the point here. Um, I uh, went back and and reread all of the confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And to be perfectly honest, walking away, I have to say, I kind of see where they're coming from. Because with respect to them, at least, can I just say it like this? Jesus was judgy, okay? And he was judgy particularly against religious hypocrisy. Uh, Almost every interaction he has with the Pharisees, maybe except for with Nicodemus, which was actually them reasoning together. Uh, But but you you get to this sense that, that Jesus that Jesus actually found his most ardent opponents among his most religious people. Now, that has to speak to every generation of the church in new ways. Every, every generation of the people, God, uh, people of God in new ways. Because Pharisees today aren't Pharisees anymore. I mean, maybe there's some Orthodox Pharisees. But Pharisees today are probably going to be in the evangelical crowd that we're all 
by and large, a part of as a Christian Missionary Alliance church. We're the ones who claim to have moral superiority or some kind of moral claim on, on the nation as evangelicals. And so that means everything Jesus says to Pharisees, we need to be particularly sensitive to and attuned to so that we can let the voice of the living God examine us through his word. And so just recognizing that what, what was it that Jesus was so perturbed by with, these, uh, with, with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day? Well, if, um, if you've been following along the, uh, the Bible reading plan that we do here, the open word Bible reading plan, you would have read Matthew 23 this week. And that is the most extensive litany of woes Jesus gives to the Pharisees. But you can see what the issue is. The issue is a, it's not about them just thinking they're better than everyone or them not realizing their guilt. It's how that way of thinking shuts other people out. And, and, and as the ones who represent God, the religious leaders, they were God's name tag in some sense as far as the people are concerned. To be pushed away from them is to be pushed away from God himself. And, and this is the great burden for all the witnesses of Jesus. We are, we are those who bear his name. This is, by the way, really what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't just mean saying, you know, GD or whatever. It means as those who represent his name, who, who bear his name, in whose name we live and move and have our being, as those who are his witnesses, Whenever we misrepresent his character to the world, that's what taking his name is really about. It's claiming divine motivation for something we're doing or divine favor, divine blessing on something we're doing that, that may be just our presumption that God is with it. But, but to invoke God's name for anything, it's a, it, I mean, this is our creator. This is our maker. This is our judge. We should be careful what we're saying God says he does and, and, and how that's reflected in our life. So, so, the, so understand the, the frustration, I think, in these encounters can be seen by Jesus is talking to the very people who are supposed to represent him and they can't even recognize him as he's come to reveal himself as the, the son of the living God. But he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Notice he says in Matthew 23, you sit on Moses' seat. And so he, dis he tells people, therefore, observe whatever they tell you. Because they represent the law. But then he has to say, but don't do the works that they do. Practice what they preach, but know that they don't practice what they preach. Because it's not about them, it's about the law that they're representing. And, and so, and then, but then he goes and he he begins to just pile on indictment after indictment. You tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but you're not willing to move them with a finger. You do all your deeds to be seen by others, your people pleasers. You love the place of honor at feast and at best seats at synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They love the fame. They love the notoriety. They love the respect from the people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And this gets to the key issue. This gets to the issue of why not letting people condemn you and judge you is so important. 
because it happens all the time. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and neither you nor they will go in. He says, you travel across land and sea and you make a single convert. And once you do, he becomes twice the child of hell as you are. Do you see what this is? The heart of God coming out in the wrath of Jesus' words. But it's all because of his love for those he's trying to bring in. And people are are shutting them out, these scribes and Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, he says, outward, beautiful. Inside, dead man's bones. You're full of hypocrisy, and he used the word lawlessness or iniquity. And that gets to the heart of the issue. It's interesting that the people who represent the law are accused of being full of lawlessness, isn't it? Right? Because what it suggests is that to them, the law was not really a a communication from the living God himself. Because if it were, they would actually live with it in their hearts. It was just a set of, of religious rules and structures and strictures that they could bob and weave their way through and appear righteous on the outside, but be full of hatred and lust and greed and all everything else on the inside and keep that hidden. And it's easy to judge people who have covert sins when all of yours are overt, right? When your resentment, when your whatever it is, you can keep that hidden. You can keep that under wraps. But tax collectors, sinners, and so on, they have a harder time hiding it. And that's who Jesus came for. He came for all of those who are willing not to hide it. And so... So that's what this, pa- this passage, Jesus, like I said, is judgy. Uh, just consider what, what he's suggesting about the issue being uh, about hating and loving money versus God. He says, no man can serve two masters for either hate the one or love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money, which suggests that they were haters of Who? Yeah, exactly, right? They were haters of God. He's suggesting, he's telling them to their face, essentially. You can't love God and money. And then the next line we read, you're a lover of money. And he says, you will either love one and hate the other, be devoted to one, despise it. He's telling them, you're haters of God. How do you come to a place where you represent God and hate God all at once? Uh, I think I got a better sense of the atmosphere of this scene and the scenes like it this week uh, when I saw on the news a video under this headline, you may have seen it, man who brazenly attacked judge during sentencing said he was having a bad day. Sounds like it. But uh, notice the subtitle here. After the attack, Deborah Redden told Marshall that the... uh, The judge has it out for me, and the judge is evil. The judge is evil. See, that is the real issue in this scene. It's it's not that Jesus is just being judgy. uh, I mean, well, you could say it is. He's He's just calling out their hatred. He's just calling out their sin that's on the inside of them that they've been able to hide from everyone else but they can't hide from him. They're just calling it out to his face and it's, it's not just that he was judgy, okay? The reason he could do that 
is it, it, the only person who can do that is the judge. He's judgy because he's the judge. Jesus is judge, okay? That's what you need to know about Jesus. He's the only one who's allowed to be judgy without being accused of being judgy, okay? Because judges are supposed to judge. And their hatred toward him, therefore, revealed hatred toward God, right? Because he is God in the flesh. And so when he comes and he starts exposing their sin, the defensiveness and the hatred they feel is, is a hatred that is directed toward God. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever felt defensive or hateful when someone called you out for something that's true about you? Is not our default kind of inclination to, to defensiveness and pride and doubling down and digging our heels in? Now, we wouldn't do that with Jesus, though, right? The one who would actually tell you way more bad stuff about yourself than anyone else could ever even know. You wouldn't do that to Jesus, though, right? You see, I, honestly, when I, the deeper I got into this, I had to ask myself the question in these terms. In what ways do I hate you, Jesus? Because there are parts of me where I don't want to be confronted. I don't want to change. I don't, I, I want to live like these Pharisees. I want to justify myself. I want to justify myself and not, and not seek your justice, not your righteousness. By the way, justice and righteousness, same word in Greek. So whenever you hear one, hear both, okay? But this, this brings us to the, the second point, the law then, the law. The law is all or nothing. The law is all or nothing. Notice what he says, verse 16, 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, good news is uh, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, why would he say that in, in this context? What, what's this, the law being brought up here have to do with what he's saying? Well, remember the charge. You are those who justify yourselves, is what he said. Or you could translate it, make yourselves righteous. The, the law was the standard by, that measured righteousness. And righteousness really means, ultimately, right relationship with God. And you could use the law as a proxy for that because if you obeyed every command of the law, you were righteous and you were in right relationship with the, wall, with the law. But what Jesus is doing, pointing this out about the law in the context of this interaction where he's just said, remember, the, those who are faithful in little are faithful in much and vice versa. He, he, which he's, he's trying to relativize all your human scales of righteousness. You, gotta, you just got to see it all on a flat plane. What matters is what does the law say? I don't care if you were a little faithful or a lot faithful. Were you unfaithful at all? Because if you were by the law, that renders you unrighteous. And so what he's doing, he's pointing out, look, you can't justify yourselves by comparing your goodness to someone else's badness. You can't compare your outside to someone else's inside. You can't compare, you, you can't compare your judgment of yourself against, anyone else, against your judgment about anyone else because your judgments don't matter in the presence of the judge, do they? <laughs> and so, and so he, he's showing them, stop comparing yourself to others, compare yourself 
to God's law. You see, they were doing what Calvin did at the beginning. They, they thought that they were good and justified simply by all the things they hadn't done, right? That, isn't that what he said? You heard Calvin's working de- definition of good. I haven't killed anyone, committed any felonies, started any wars. I don't eat people. I'm not a cannibal, <laughs> right? But it, this is exactly the, the reasoning that the Pharisees used to justify themselves. We've seen it. We give, we're given insight into this into Luke 18. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Again, tax collector, that's an overt sinner. He wears his sin as a, a, a job uniform. Okay? He, he, he couldn't hide that he was a sinner. He was a public sinner. And so they went to the temple to pray, and then the Pharisees, standing far off, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Even like this fill-in-the-blank, whoever you would put at the bottom of the scale. That's the bottom of the scale for them. And so he's thinking, all I need to do to justify myself is find someone worse than me. And I'll climb up the ladder, okay? And, and, and that, to that, Jesus says, the warning, it's what he said at the end of Matthew 23. It's what he says again here in Luke. He says it in chapter 18. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. In our passage, he says it like this. What you exalt before men, it's an abomination in the sight of God. And you see, comparing yourself to, to others only matters in the court of public opinion. And it turns out in the end, that court just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It, that's not the court that we need to see ourselves in, and it's certainly not the court that you're in this morning in, in the house of God. Not that I'm the judge. I'm saying we're all here with the judge. And he's our advocate, by the way, which is good news that he's the judge. So, so then consider this all or, nothing, all or nothing standard, okay? This is consistent throughout the New Testament. This is what Paul says in Galatians about the law. He says, I testify that everyone who accepts circumcision, that's the mark of the old covenant. So basically you accept circumcision, you're saying, I want to establish righteousness by the law, okay? My relationship with God, by the law. He says, everyone who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. And then he does a scandalous wordplay. You are severed from Christ if you get the circumcision, if you know what I'm saying, if you know what Paul's saying. Uh, you didn't get that? Uh, okay, Eddie did. <clears throat> um, but, but do you see what he's saying? Look, if you want to keep one, one jot or tittle of the law as the basis of your relationship with God, you got to keep all of it. All, what is it, 586 commands or 600, whatever. You have to keep all of it. You have to keep, and, and the obverse is also true. That if you break one of the commands, he says whoever, this is in James, whoever keeps the law and fails but in one point becomes guilty of all of it. All of it? Really? You mean if I break the Sabbath, I'm guilty of murder? If I covet my neighbor's wife, I'm guilty of committing adultery with her. Imagine if we ran our courts like this, okay? A man about to be executed, they pull the black cloth over his face. Any last words? 
well, yeah. I didn't know double parking was so serious. I thought that was funny. But th this comes back to what we said a few weeks ago about the little things are the big things and the big things are the little things. Because remember how Jesus funnels all of the commands of the law. Well, Paul actually does it in this passage too, I think. Uh, oh, I didn't go far enough. He funnels all of the commands into one principal command. You've heard it said? Well, I was quoting the wrong one. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Not just any kind of love, not just the, our culture's definition of love, not just the examples of love that you've had in your family, for good or for ill. My love, love one another as I have loved you. That's the new, that is the, the standard. And, and so then consider, okay, th this is just getting out of the abstraction of all of this. All you have to do to consider then the relevance of what he's saying is what are the kind of people, if love is the measure, ultimately, Christ-centered, cruciform love, self-giving love, if that's the standard, consider the kind of people that you've received the most love from. Have they been the most religious-feeling people, the most religiously proper people, Usually, they're the kind of people who have a story, and they've got a little bit of a background, and they recognize the depth of their sin, and they know they come to the kingdom with empty hands. They know the good news that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They know that, and that, that's something that all can know. The only thing keeping any of us from that is the deception that we do have something in our hands to offer. That we actually do have some merit above our brothers and sisters because we haven't murdered like them or committed adultery like them or whatever it is. And we're deceiving ourselves. And, and what's happening in that, in that event is not only are you you're judging other people, you're actually heaping judgment on yourself because you're taking the place of, of the judge. And, and sometimes devout religious people they can be the most loving people, but they can also be the coldest, hardest people you ever meet. And, and only, well, only God knows the difference. We, we probably know the difference, don't we, when you get to interact with people. But God knows the difference, and, and if there is no love, if there is a lack of love in your heart, that is, doesn't matter how great, how many boxes you've checked. What about the love in your heart? And you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees later in, in the Gospel of Matthew? He says, he said, it was because of, the, because of their lawlessness. Again, the Pharisees, obeying the law on the outside, just didn't care that God said, love your neighbor on the inside. Didn't care about all those things that didn't have to be verified. He said that their love, it was because of their lawlessness in their heart that their love grew cold. What's the temperature of your love this morning? Jesus says that comes from, from lawlessness. From lawlessness. And, and, and what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is saying, I'm going to be the one in charge of defining what's good for me. 
right? Because law, law, lawlessness is, is not really about not having any law. It's about not having God's law. And if you don't have God's law, you're the lawmaker, okay? And so, and, and that keeps us in this deception of determining good by comparing ourselves to others' evil, by others' evil. But see, the, the fact is, you can't just compare yourself either to other people's evil or to what you're not doing. Because again, Jesus shifted the whole focus in the New Testament from the commands of prohibition, you shall not, to, to commands of proactivity, you shall, you shall love, you shall love. So no longer can you just use the limiting principle as the standard. Now the question is, where have I not loved well? Oh my goodness. If love is the standard, how often have I failed to love? And if, if you start seeing yourself like that, there's no way that you can justify yourself. All you can do is throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus, allow him to give you the grace that he wants to give you, allow that to humble your soul, and that's what transforms you into becoming a gracious person as he is gracious. Loving as he is loving. And so... And so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, why, why is it genuinely the same to say that you're just as guilty if you covet as you are if you commit adultery? The reason is this. It's not about the nature of the command. It's about the nature of the commander. You're still disobeying the same God either way, right? And so... And so Obviously, there are socially convenient sins for all of us. Every group has their own kind of category of the socially acceptable sins. And what Jesus is saying is you, there is no such group. If you're treating the law like that, all you're doing is justifying yourself before each other. And I've come to tell you the truth. I have come to bear witness to the truth that you are guilty in the eyes of God. What you exalt, it's an abomination in the sight of God, he says. And so he, well, he was coming to declare judgment, uh, and, and this is fundamentally good news. Because at the end of the day, I think we all know that we're guilty. That's a common grace God gives us, is a conscience. And Paul says in Romans 2 that our conscience bears witness with us on the day of judgment, either excusing or accusing us. Do you know what that's saying? That's saying that the, the conscience that you have, which Paul also calls the law written on our hearts, he's, he's saying, I'll tell you where that comes from. It's actually the living God who created you, speaking to you in your heart. And if you ignore that voice of conscience in your heart for too long, over time, your heart will become hard and you will become deaf. That's why the book of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Not, not your ears. You see, you hear the voice of God in your heart. It's conviction. It's, it's inspiration. It's, it's what moves you or what keeps you from moving into territory you shouldn't be going, right? So this, Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to cultivate this inner ear in your heart, and, and, and not be so legalistic. He's saying the Pharisees, right? That, that there, is, there is actual communion that you can have with God. Communication you can have with God. Not just a law. And so this brings us to the good. Um, 
Okay. Um, let's see. We're a little behind here. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's, keep, let's keep going, and then we'll, we may need to end a little early, though. So, all right, the good. Um, I, want you to, I want you to notice, then, if we're, if we're actually looking at, well, then how do you define the good? I think perhaps a good place to start is what was just said. The only way to do good is to, buy, uh, to obey the one who commands us to do good. Because remember what Jesus says to the rich young ruler when he comes to him. And he says, what does he say? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now why would Jesus say that? It's like the one person who finally recognizes him, you know, and then he rebukes him. And uh, is it because Jesus is not good? Or is it because Jesus is not divine? Well, I think it's all where you put the emphasis. Because you could hear that if you hear Jesus saying, why do you call me good, right? But if you put the emphasis where I think it should go, I think it'll become clear. Why do you call me good? Right? What do you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See, it's not that Jesus isn't truly good. It's that the rich young ruler was in no position to make declarations of judgment about whether the son of the living God is good or not. And he's putting him in his place. No one's good but God alone. And then he points him back to the law. And, uh, and, and then he makes a command that the law doesn't give. And it says the man went away sorrowful. Because he had many possessions, Jesus told him to give away. You see, and, and he went away, and he walked away from the kingdom. Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to go through into the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. It's in that context. What's he saying? He's saying that, that if you don't, look, here's the basis of it all. How do you become righteous? You, you do what Jesus says to do, believe what Jesus said, right? That's it. Because Jesus just commanded this guy. His word to that rich young ruler was as good as law because he is the lawmaker. He's the lawgiver. It was no different for him to say, sell all your possessions to that man than it was to tell Israel, you shall have no other gods before you. Because it's not about the command, it's about the commander. You understand that Jesus is the judge of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords. And that means his Indictments are solid and real, but also his pardons and his forgiveness. And so, um, okay. I'm not going to take you through all this here. Let's just keep going. How about that? Okay, good. Let's get to the good news. Uh, there's no way we would have got through it all. Um, okay. So I, I want to just bring you here to the, uh, to the good news in this text because I think we've all sufficiently um, heard enough about us being guilty sinners, okay? I'm not trying to come up here and beat up on anybody. I'm trying to do just the opposite. I'm trying to, I'm trying to just show you that Jesus came to shine a light on humanity, to expose the heart of humanity. As he said, God sees your heart, and he has come with the, eye, the burning eyes of God to expose us, and then it says, did you notice what it said in, uh, in verse 16? Not about the law, but about the good news. 
It's one of the strangest things Jesus says. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. What in the world does that mean? And everyone forces his way into it. Well, I think the sense of it is, it, actually, the, there's, it's better to just imagine an image. I think the image is, imagine our border wall in Mexico fell down. And floods of, uh, uh, between Mexico and Texas, floods of immigrants begin coming into the country, coming through the gates. And, 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 and they're coming in, no one's vetting them, without any question, charging their way in. And then the commander-in-chief comes on to the broadcast, and he said, hey guys, I'm the one who broke the wall down, and I'm welcoming them all in. That's the sense the Pharisees are getting from Jesus. And that's, I think, what he means when he says that the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing their way in. Everyone like that unrighteous steward that he talked about, they're forcing their way in because the wall's been broken down. That tax collector named Levi who wrote the gospel of Matthew, he forced his way in because the wall came breaking down. This sinner named Jeremy at 22 years old, high school dropout with a drug addiction, I forced my way in because the wall came down. All of us are welcome to force our way in because the wall has come down and the commander broke it down, okay? I'm not suggesting a a foreign policy here or anything, but I will say that's Jesus' foreign policy for the kingdom and maybe that should inform how we think about our brothers and sisters in other nations, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Right? And so... Uh, so let me just let me just end with a, a story. So what what do we do with all of that then? It's very simple. It's very simple. Look, if the number one relational principle of the kingdom of God is forgiveness, the number one principle virtue for the individual is humility. Two things that are never ever ever easy. Forgiving and being humble. Forgiving and being humble. And what do we do with all of this? Humble yourselves. That's what Jesus says over and over. It's the only cure to the sickness of the Pharisees, to the leaven of the Pharisees. The only cure. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The only cure is to humble yourself. So I just, I'll end with a, a, a story about how God humbled me. Um, it was a, it was a symbolic day for me, a, 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 a kind of graduation of sorts of a day because it was a day I got officially ordained as a Christian Missionary Alliance reverend. I became a past, I became a religious leader. I got the robe, the collar. No, they didn't give me a collar. I felt kind of shafted, to be honest. I wanted a collar. <clears throat> But uh, I, had, I had driven up, uh, this was when I was living in Kentucky, I'd driven up to Ohio to the district office to, for my ordination exam. And after passing the exam, the exam there was this big ceremonious celebration. And, uh, and all of the, you know, the district overlords shook my hand and called me Reverend Spainauer. Congratulations, Reverend. 
Uh, I don't know why nobody here calls me Reverend, you know. I maybe need to get a name tag or something. <laughs> but anyway, I left feeling a little smug, maybe, feeling good about myself. And I was on my way home, uh, and I had to stop by Ikea, one of the places I swore myself I'd never go. Um, but the girls in the youth group, as a youth pastor then, the girls in the youth group wanted me to stop and get some pillows. So, uh, so I went into Ikea, and I, <laughs> for pillows for, they're making a prayer room. It doesn't matter. I stopped at Ikea, and uh, I was immediately confused and overwhelmed uh, because it was like, it was like there was a showroom and then there was a warehouse and you couldn't buy what you were looking at. So I just turned around and walked out. And uh, <laughs> this story has nothing to do with that. I want to tell you what happened in the parking lot of Ikea. So I'm making my six and a half mile walk back to my car. <laughs> and out of the corner of my eye, I see, I see some shiny bling off to the distance. It's a guy, mid-20s. He's got his shirt off, dangling, you know, shiny necklaces. And of the hundreds of thousands of people in the Ikea parking lot, of course, he's walking straight toward me. And uh, so clearly, I'm thinking, oh, I see, God's testing me on my ordination day. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so, so he's going to send this godless, godless heathen my way. And, uh, and so I can introduce him to Jesus. So, but I really wanted to go home, you know? And, and so I was hoping I could just give him five bucks or something in Jesus' name, be on my way. Well, he gets closer. I start noticing there's tattoos all over him. Looks like those faded green prison tattoos. And all of them kind of together forming one cumulative tattoo above his whole life. Mistake. He had girls' names, girls' names crossed out. That's what I mean, mistake. <laughs> a life filled with mistakes. And, and, and sure enough, he did come asking for something. He didn't ask for money, though. He wanted a ride. He said that his car had died behind the pond of Ikea. Apparently, there's a pond behind Ikea in Ohio, somewhere in Ohio. And so he tried to start the battery. It wasn't working. And so he just needed a ride to the auto parts store so we could get a new battery. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And so I give him a ride and just start asking him questions, asking him about his story. Um, and I asked him about where he lived. He, he, he said, well, I don't have a place to live right now. I'm, li I'm, I'm sleeping in my car. And I asked, well, what about your parents? He said, well, my parents have a restraining order out on me. I was like, you don't have to be that honest, you know. <laughs> and so... I mean, he's sharing it, so clearly I think he wants to talk further. I, I just said, well, what's that about? And uh, he said, well, my dad and, and my friends got mixed up together. And it's like, your dad and your friends got mixed up? What do you mean? He said, well, my dad had me selling cocaine when I was 16 years old. He never had a chance, Right? People who are raised like that don't end up as Pharisees, you know. They usually end up as the, those on the other side of the building getting as far away from the Pharisees as they can, like the sinner in Luke 18 who was praying at a distance from the Pharisee who was thankful that he wasn't like this sinner, this tax collector, or this kid, this Coke dealer at 16 years old, probably over a decade now, probably been in prison, and back out, and he said, it's like 
I make one good decision, I've got 10 bad to choose from. And, and, and then he said, uh, if I didn't know Jesus, I don't think I could make it through. Are you saved? Now, at this point, I'm questioning my salvation. Because I just spent the last hour judging this guy from his head to his toes. And, uh, and, and so I said, yeah, I'm saved. Feeling like maybe I'm not, actually. But, but before I could say anything else, he just burst out in prayer. And he said, thank you, Jesus, for sending a brother to take care. So, and then we go to AutoZone, no joke. He's in the, the uh, line and he starts witnessing to everybody about how God had provided for him through me, Reverend Spainauer, you know. <laughs> Bradley Beckham was his name. Uh, a kid who, who never had a chance in this world. A kid who would never be justified in your eyes or mine if we're judging by our standards. But a kid who is Deeply beloved by God. It's the kind of kid that the kind of people, Pharisees, push away. It's the kind of kid that Jesus is saying, no, come to me. I have bust open the gates. I have broke down the wall. And the only thing getting in the way in most cases is people. It's not brick and mortar. It's not God in the way. It's people. And, and, and God forbid it, sometimes it's us, the very people who represent his name. And so I don't know which side of the wall you see yourself on this morning. And, and, and I don't know if you need to hear this as a message to you from the position of Bradley Beckham, from the position of a tax collector center, or maybe you need to hear it from the position of a Pharisee. Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe, maybe, maybe at times. Maybe, and you know what? To be perfectly honest, I think you always need to hear it as a Bradley Beckham. Because at the end of the day, that's who we all are. Right? I mean, you, you can never hear the message as a Pharisee until you stop living as a Pharisee. Thinking like a Pharisee. Positioning your heart like a Pharisee to be the lawmaker and to be the judge. Let God judge you guilty. So that he can judge you pardoned. So that he can judge you beloved. So that you can be humbled and welcomed into the kingdom. For those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Please stand with me. And we'll pray together. And I ask the worship and prayer team to come forward. And if you need prayer for anything, please come and, or pray. You can pray in your, your seat next to with, uh, with a prayer partner there, you can link up. We can just do it, uh, as they call it, Korean style, where everybody just prays out loud. I don't know if we'll get that Pentecostal in here, but feel free. Just be free. We want this, we want the time, we want this time, this space to be a time for the Holy Spirit to minister to us from the Word. The Spirit proceeds from the Word. And, and God wants to minister to our hearts, to heal our hearts, to convict our hearts, to change our hearts, to get, take our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh, tenderize our hearts, and ultimately to write his heart on our law so we can hear him in our heart. And so that's our prayer. Father, would you soften our hearts today? 
Father, would you take hard hearts and smash them, crush them, break them, do what you need to do. You say in your word, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. That's the sacrifices that you desire, a broken and contrite heart. So Lord, as that old song says, break our heart for what breaks yours. Help us care about what you care about and, uh, and relieve us from the petty but heavy burdens of caring about all the little things that we tend to care about. Give us your vision. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Amen. As you go, I want to just read this word from the book of James and then turn it into a blessing, okay? It says this, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. May you, may Crossroads Neighborhood Church, go and show the abundant mercy of Christ only because you have so richly and clearly and convincingly and deeply and widely shown it to each of us. May we be a people who receive the abundant mercy of Jesus. Go in that grace today. Amen.